Are you listening? Damn. And a big welcome back to the Endurance Hour Podcast, episode 371. I've got a hummingbird outside my window. I just distracted me there for a second. Uh, happy Thursday as we record this episode. Back alongside Wendy Mater, I'm Dave Erickson. Uh, great questions today. Uh, an emotional story as the, the voice of Iron Man announces his retirement. We'll get to that. And hopefully we'll have time to talk about how more women can participate in the Ironman World Championship in Kona because more slots are becoming available based on the new style of uh, two days of racing, which Wendy will participate in this year in a matter of how many weeks, Wendy? Five weeks from today. Wow. Five weeks. Seems like it's knocking on the door, isn't it? Like it's right there on the corner. It's pretty, yeah, it's coming up fast. I think these last eight weeks, I remember, you know, it just seemed like yesterday I was talking about, you know, we have eight weeks. And then last mm -hmm. week we talked six weeks. Now we're down to five weeks. I had the same type of clock ticking in my ear where uh, I've already, I'm within the 12 week window of my advanced Ironman training plan that uh, we created that I'm following for Arizona, which is one of the races and your race where uh, Mike Riley will be announcing. <clears throat> his final races this year. We'll talk about that here pretty coming up pretty quickly. Our first question today is from Kathy, and it is this. I'm thinking about cutting the legs in my wetsuit by three or four inches, thinking that it would be easier to get them uh, off. What are your thoughts on uh, eliminating that much um, material from your full-length wetsuit, Wendy? Hey, Kathy, thanks for the question. So I've never cut a wetsuit, but I've heard of other people cutting off their sleeves or cutting part of their legs like she's suggesting to either make it easier to get on and off as well as it's too warm and they don't really need, need sleeves. So they've cut their sleeves off. So I went and just did a Google search just to see, you know, if that's kind of what people do and how to do it properly. And I had sent her some links about doing that just because I have no experience with it. I do know that I, one reason I dislike wetsuits is the time it takes to come off and, you know, running into some barriers, especially with the legs and stomping on your legs and maybe having to sit down to um, pull the wetsuit off. And they do have wetsuit strippers to make it easier for you. And I also wear a very large wetsuit. I will wear a men's large sleeveless wetsuit just because of the fact that it does slip on and off my body a lot easier than like I would normally probably wear women's small, which I don't. And so I, I do definitely understand why she wants to do that. Again, I would just do it, you know, in the right, I would do it properly. So that's why I sent her some links and videos to show her how to do it based on what other people have done. I mean, I'm sure that compromises uh, the, the quality of the wetsuit. I don't know if that would create any uh, rubbing or possible rash on your, your shins or your, or your knees because there's not there's no movement there as opposed to maybe your shoulders if you were to cut off your shoulders with some scissors on your wetsuit. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, I, I haven't watched the full videos, but the videos, there are a lot of them of mm -hmm. success that people have had of cutting off their wetsuits. So I want to do include this, this question in the podcast because there's probably others thinking of the same thing and they just don't know how to do it. And we spoke in the last couple episodes, and what you say is that, you know, you don't do a lot of kicking anyway when you're in a race in a full-length wetsuit. It's for buoyancy, and the legs are just there for somewhat balance and maybe a, a slight flutter, but you really don't use the legs. So 
you're not really gaining too much. Well, are you really losing that much buoyancy if you, let's say, you cut off from the knees below? No, I'm going to say no because I also like the core shorts that we have from Blue 70. And there's also called Sim Shorts and other brands have different names where they're just the short. So they're just above the knee and the purpose of them is just to keep your hips up. Yeah. They, they don't really provide any warmth because they're just, you know, from the hips to the knee length. And so I think if you cut your wetsuit, it would be more like a sim short or a lava pant back in the day. We're talking, you know, um, early 2000s. My husband got a pair of what was called lava shorts, lava pants, lava pants, because they were they went down to your shin. And so they weren't as short as a core short, but they weren't full legs all the way to your ankle. They stopped at about the shin. And so that's kind of what it seems like if you cut your legs off, you would want them to be cut at about shin height. Have you ever experimented, because I have, and I'll tell you my results, experimented with swimming uh, with your regular swim suit, then core shorts, and then full wetsuit on how much time, I don't know if you can break it down by percentage, but how much more time you're saving by wearing each of the three elements in a swim? Well, what I have done, and I think I did it after I saw what you did, what you did was I swam a thousand with just a swimsuit. I swam a thousand with the core short and I swam a thousand with the pull buoy because I, well, I didn't do the thousand swim. I actually just compared pull buoy to core short and I was definitely faster in the core short, but I also know that I had to take in consideration of, I swam the core short one first. So I was a little bit more rested than when I swam it with the pull buoy. But there was about a 30-second difference in that 1K that I did in the pool, and I tried to maintain a similar rate of perceived effort. So I tried to keep as many variables as possible constant, and the only differentiation was the core short and the pull buoy. I don't think I did the wetsuit that year. Because I've always thought about the tightness that I have around my shoulders and my delts because uh, I've I've got some broad shoulders and my arms and shoulders are, are you know somewhat muscular, so I it's kind of hard to get something that's uh, flexible in that area. And maybe other people have experienced that too. If, uh-huh. if you have a suit that's a little bit you know half size too small, you have some soreness or some mm-hmm. early fatigue after a you know a 1.2 mile swim or a 2.4 mile swim, and it's like ah that's just I don't want that energy that match to be lit too soon, and then I'm I'm dealing with a little bit of you know, I can't raise my shoulder as much. And then it's just on your mind of cutting the, sh- the shoulders off or buying one of the sleeveless suits, wondering, is it going to make that much of a difference in open water to not have that slickness and the buoyancy on your, your arms? And for your, what's your experience and what would your take be on that? I think from a buoyancy perspective, and this is years ago, Blue 70 had, um, done some research and some testing on the buoyancy of a full body, full arms, full legs versus a sleeveless. And I I don't recall, but I don't think there was any really difference in buoyancy. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing about the full sleeves, and for me, I would only wear full sleeves if the water was below probably 63 degrees. And I actually have a, a YouTube video on the Endurance Hour with four different types of wetsuits that I own, different styles. And I talk about what type of temperature of the water would I wear, the full sleeve, the sleeveless, 
the short sleeves and short legs, which is called a short john, mm -hmm. and then just the core short. And I talk about water temperature and why I would wear each one depending on water temperature. So I'm not really doing it for the buoyancy. That's another thing that I don't like about a wetsuit is I feel my buoyancy is too, I don't know if it's too buoyant. I don't like the buoyancy feeling that a wetsuit gives me. I like my natural buoyancy. <laughs> and well, so well, just that yeah. wetsuit feel doesn't feel comfortable. Well, you, you, you are coming from a swimming background too. So your, your technique and your body position is already at a, where right. it needs to be. And this would throw off like, right. no, no, I, I know what I'm doing here. I don't need your extra, you know, little bump in, in buoyancy. It throws off what I'm comfortable with. Whereas I want it, I need it. I'm relying right. on it to help me stay on top of the water or glide a little easier, less effort. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so like, you know, let's talk about water temperature really quickly. Um, for a World Triathlon Corporation event, if the water temperature is above 76.1, you can't wear a wetsuit, and that includes core shorts. I get that question a lot. Oh, oh, well, if it's shorts. too warm, can I still wear the core short? Not if it's above the legal limit. And if you do decide to wear the core short, it is neoprene, it is wetsuit material. Yeah. If you do decide to wear the core short or the wetsuit, and it's above 76.1 but below 83, you can wear a wetsuit, and you're just not eligible for any type of awards or prizes. Now, if it's above 83, according to USAT and WTC, they will not allow a wetsuit because that's just too warm. Your body would get too warm. You'd overheat. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm sure I'm guessing with the WTC, you were talking about half iron or full distances, nothing, nothing under that distance. Right, exactly. And then USA triathlon, the legal limit is 78. And so if you do a, a USA triathlon sanction event, which is normally sprints or Olympic distances, mm -hmm. and you do decide to wear a wetsuit above 78, then again, you won't be eligible for prizes okay. or awards. Great question, Kathy. And we got a good discussion out of that one. <laughs> Next out from Nancy. Um, what kind of supplements do you find work best for you? And this is very personalized. I don't know if we can get into any specifics here, Wendy. Yeah. So like when it comes to supplements, you know, when I, when I think of supplements, I'm thinking of really for a tra for an athlete, I'm thinking of when they're trying to take some sort of maybe protein supplement or like a creatine. And for me also supplements mean like vitamins, you know, vitamin C, a multivitamin iron, because I'm someone that takes vitamin C and iron as a supplement. And I think it's important when you're talking supplements, be a little bit more specific about what supplements you're interested in, because I don't think anyone needs supplements unless they have a blood test, they talk to their doctor and they're deficient in something, you know, maybe they have a low low carbohydrate, low fat, low protein intake. So maybe they're deficient in some sort of macronutrient or they're deficient in a micronutrient, which is the vitamins and minerals. And as a female, um, vegan athlete, my, you know, things that I might be deficient in is iron and B12 as well as calcium, I think, or vitamin D, sorry, vitamin D, iron and B12. So I, Annually, I get my blood drawn on in a fasted state and I get all that tested just to see where my levels are. And right now I'm in the normal range of everything, but I still supplement with vitamin C because it's good for your immunity. And my iron is generally on the low end of normal. 
So I do supplement with iron supplements just so I can get more, you know, closer to the, the middle range of abnormal. Well, I wish I had any feedback on for me, but I don't really do anything uh, in terms of adding supplements. I mean, every once in a while I have a, a whey protein shake, but that's just for like a, a sweet treat, you know, I'll throw in some fruit and some whey protein just for a, you know, kind yeah. of a, a, a middle meal somewhere throughout the day, but it's not as a, a regular routine of adding things. Every once in a while I, I might do a, a multivitamin, but it's really hit and miss for me. So I haven't had any problems yet. Yeah, exactly. It just might be me. Yeah. And you know, I'm definitely not someone that promotes supplements. I does ask me, I'll make sure that they go to their um, physician or they get their blood drawn from the company Inside Tracker. I know a lot of people are are familiar with Inside Tracker because they do work with athletes, and you get a complete blood analysis. And just don't take supplements for the sake of taking supplements. That could also be dangerous. Mm-hmm. I coached an athlete a few years ago who um, was high on B12. And I'm like, wow, you know, are you a big meat eater? Because B12 is a big meat. Um, meats have B12 in it. And she said no. But the iron supplement she happened to be taking had a higher than normal than what she needed B12 in within that iron supplement. So her B12 was extremely like dangerously high. And I had never heard of that before. So again, thankfully, she had a doctor that recognized that. Because you know, you too much, too much of a good thing could just be too much and make it a bad thing. Okay. Good points. Good question, Nancy. Now we maybe have a little bit more we can add to that. Um, thank you. Uh, next up, Wendy, I signed up for my first ultra 60 K in Bryce Canyon coming up in May of next year, 2023. I have completed a few halves and uh, a full, so I'm not new to the endurance world, just trail running and wanted a new challenge. Can you share some training and racing tips as I start my preparation this fall? Oh, I think this is a great thing to do because it's something that I've experimented with being the Ironman, half Ironman triathlete for 30 years. Um, I did my first ultra in 2011. Yeah, definitely 2011, just because I wanted to change. I had the endurance and I just wanted to try something new. And I had a lot of friends in the trail running community that I started to um, hang out with and and do running with. So I think it's a good change of pace. And I think you can definitely use your Ironman and 70.3 training and racing mental and physical to get you through your first ultra. Now there's you know, back when I started, I just researched, I went to libraries and bookstores and I was trying to find a training plan online or something to guide me. And back then there wasn't as much information as there is now. So first and foremost, I would say definitely try to find a a training plan or a coach that can help you with the, um, details of the training plan as far as frequency, duration, and intensity. Um, and definitely think about training by greater perceived effort and not by heart rate or power or anything like that, because, you know, the nature of something like Bryce Canyon, I looked up the elevation, there's quite a bit of elevation gain and loss, and you just can't monitor your training solely by heart rate. You want to monitor your training by rate of perceived effort. And if you are going to use heart rate, use it as kind of to give you feedback of where you're at while you're climbing and descending. And um, another key point is to make sure you train on the types of terrain that you're going to race on. When I did my first ultra, it was a 50 miler in steamboat. And I just thought, because I had no experience trail running, I just thought it was kind of going to be like I trained in at Lori State Park, which was 
at that time was fairly level terrain, you know, rolling hills. And so when I got to steamboat for my race, the first six miles was up this steep grade and I had no experience with that at all. Really steep ups, long, steep ups and long, steep down. So when I got to about mile 30, my, my quads were shot. Everything was shot just because I didn't train on the terrain that I was going to compete on because I didn't know it was all like new to me. I had done Ironman Lake Placid six weeks before, so I was pretty fit, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sport specific fit in the, in the nature of, I just didn't train on that terrain. Um, also, you know, look into knowing when and how far the aid stations are, what kind of foods they're going to have. Aid stations at ultras are very different than an aid station you're going to see at an Ironman. And so that, again, that was all new to me. That was a wake up call when I got to my first aid station and I saw like 25 different types of candy and, you know, maybe five different kinds of chips that was primarily there. And then also knowing that you're allowed to have what's called a drop bag, which is similar to a special needs bag that you'll get in an Ironman, except a drop bag is actually for Um, maybe dry shoes, dry socks, warm clothes, depending on the weather and how long you're going to be on the terrain. So there's, you know, again, there's a lot of similarities as far as endurance and as far as just like the types of training you're going to do, but then there's just a lot of logistical differences. So you want to make sure you check out the website, talk to other people if you can, who have done this race and they can give you a lot more feedback on how to best prepare yourself mentally and physically. And just, you know, have fun with it. It's your first one just really enjoy the experience, take it all in and, and really pace yourself and eat a lot. So this one says the, it starts around the eight to 9,000 foot elevation mark. That's where it, it begins. So you're already up there Mm -hmm. in high elevation. So the math wise is she's doing the 60 K. Did I do this wrong? Uh, 10 K is 6.2 times six. I got 37.2 miles. Is that right? Sound about right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you're doing this or you're training for an ultra, and I know a couple people who do this besides yourself, is that it seems like it must be all encompassing with your training. There has to be some sort of weight training or core training to complement it because of how many miles you're you're putting in. But that's all you would be training for, right? It's not like, oh, unless you have an easy spin day. I mean, this is an ultra runner is an ultra running person, right? You don't dabble in other things. Yes. And I'm glad you brought up the strength training component because there's just a lot more stabilizers in your hips and core that you're going to use on the nature of just any trail terrain that you don't use when you train for like an Ironman or 70.3, which is trained on the road. And when I, especially my first two years of doing ultras, all I did was run. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of step mill, which is the revolving Stairmaster that you see in a gym. That was actually beneficial for me as well. When I couldn't make it to um, do do the hills, I did the step mill, which was really good for strength. Um, And back then when I started, I didn't do as much strength training as I would advise now to really get those quads solid um, and ready for the the descents, especially. Uh And yes, you know, it's, really hard, difficult, especially your first time to manage any type of biking and swimming as long, unless you wanted to do something easy, like you said, an easy spin or an easy swim, which I did when I did my first ultra. And now I'm able to balance them a little bit more because I have a lot more experience. But, but when you do your first one, I would just focus on the trail running 
especially at that elevation and with that, that as much elevation gain and loss as you're going to get, the more time you run on various um, trails and just varying your terrain, the better your, your hips and core and muscles are going to adapt and you're going to be more prepared. Going back to my first one, I didn't have that much time to prepare. I only had six weeks when I signed up for it. Um, I just, again, like I said, I didn't have that sports specificity. And even the next year when I repeated that race, I, I still trained too many miles on the flat road mm. when I should have done more hills and more trails. Wow. One more question for you, Ennis. Oh, this is not a, my first impression is this is more of a, uh, not so much a competition as it is a completion event because of the distances, uh, if you're a first timer, you just want to check it off your box. I did it. So these training runs that you do on the trails, or whatever, it's a lot of base building, a lot of just endurance base building of, let me just go out for time. If the distance, whatever it may be, but I need to get my body used to this overall duration. Oh, definitely. It's all about strength, endurance and pacing, you know, getting, you know, when you're an ultra runner, you're, you're a hiker. So you're really getting your muscles used to hiking, which is something I neglected when I first started. I didn't do enough hiking and training. And I found that I did a lot more hiking race day than what I trained. Mm. And so I was very weak at that. I was very, that really slowed me down. And so now again, I have more experience. It's 10 years later. I'm, I do a lot of hiking while I'm training for an ultra more than I've ever done. And I've gotten faster at it. And then I also use polls. So find out if the event will allow polls. Again, it just depends on the race director. But some of my events, I could take polls, which makes it a little bit easier for me, specifically on the downhills, to have a little bit more support on the downhills because uphills are definitely my strength. Running running uphills is my strength. And so, you know, go 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 to enjoy the experience. Meet a lot of new people. Ultra runners are just different. They're a different um, athlete than other athletes that you've been. Um, been with so enjoy the experience enjoy nature it's all about being in nature and the beauty of the mountains uh the poles stability is that what they're really used for stability and then they help you they help you get uphill when you're really fatiguing and you can like plant your poles and kind of help give you some momentum and the uphill part Okay. And then for me on the downhill part, that, that was my weakness. And again, I've worked on it. So I've become a, a lot better downhill runner that I don't need them like I used to. But for stability, especially on really steep, steep downhills that could put you on your butt sliding down. Okay. If you have those poles, they'll keep you a little bit more stable, and especially in the later stages of any ultra. Are they collapsible? Are they all the one length that you, you, you can you break them down and put them into a backpack? I mean, I, I, this is kind of coming to me right now. How do you hold these things? Yeah. So, so you can, you can shorten them and lengthen them. Hmm. Um, I shorten, I, I actually have a pack now, um, a two liter pack for my fluid that has holders for my poles. I specifically got this cause I wanted something to carry my poles when I didn't need them. They just have, you know, special hmm. clasps on the back of the, the pack to carry the poles, but yeah, shorten them and lengthen them. And so it takes a little bit of time. I mean, it takes practice. If you're going to use poles, make sure you train with them because there are different lengths. So I did some research online to find, you know, what, what position of where my hand should be. Um, 
you know, with my hips? Should they be above my hips? Should they be at hip level? You know, just to find that sweet spot of what's comfortable and how I like to hold them at what height. Mm -hmm. And then the poles have markings. So you just got to remember the marking that you want to set your poles at when you're out there in race day. Why wouldn't a race director allow them? Well, in the Georgia death race that I did in March, it was a 74 mile trail run because it was the Georgia death race. They were trying to make it as hard as possible okay. for us. Okay. So they didn't allow poles at that specific race. Well, I think we've given you some pretty good training tips and, and suggestions in preparation for your fall uh, run there in uh, Bryce Canyon. This question from Sean, I have my first 70.3 in Augusta, Georgia in a few weeks. Did my first open water swim, panicked 50 yards out. I think it was the water depth that freaked me out. And I don't know how to relax. Any thoughts on how to overcome this fear of being in uh, deep water when you're swimming? So yeah, thanks, Sean. That's a that's an interesting question, and and I'm really glad you came to the realization that it was the water depth that was making you panic, um, because most times people get in a, a large body of water and just not having the walls, or you know, it's such a just a you know vast, you know, you could be 50 yards out and feel like you're a mile from shore, especially if you're not experienced like that, and so. He had, he had actually commented to me and he told me if it was a pool swim and it was that deep, he probably would have still panicked. So it wasn't just the open water nature of open water swimming. It was the depth of the water and, um, definitely, you know, wear a wetsuit, get experience in your wetsuit, get comfortable floating on your back and your stomach. And when you're floating, you just have to relax. Cause if you have tense muscles while you're floating, um, chances are higher that your hips might sink and you're just, that's going to cause you to panic even more. So get, whether you're in a pool or in an open water setting where it's more shallow, just get comfortable relaxing on your back, relaxing on your stomach, making sure you're exhaling underwater, inhaling above water, as well as treading water, get comfortable treading water in the pool and then you can kind of take that skill out to open water. And then other things are, you know, just making comfortable, you know how to sight properly with, you know, we call it alligator eyes. We have a video on the Endurance Hour YouTube channel that talks about alligator eyes and I give demonstrations. And, you know, always go out with like a safety buoy for more security and also make sure there's other people out there with you. Because sometimes when you're in that panic mindset, your mind is not in the right state of mind. And it just takes someone to, to, to ask you questions about what's happening and to help calm your mind down so you know that you're in the safety of others. Good tips. Thank you, Sean. It's a, a real valid question for a lot of us who are out there having that, uh, the fear of the unknown. So this is a, a topic here that was brought up with the Ironman World Championship in Kona being split into two days. And remind me, Wendy, was it split in two days last year or is this the first year? That wasn't last year so because it was May, the, was in St. George. Yeah, right. So this year, October 2022, will be the first time Ironman is splitting up. The women race on Thursday. The men race on Saturday. I believe there's one male age group. I think it's 25 to 29. That's also racing with the women for some reason, but I just don't remember the breakdown off the top of my head. And the reason they're doing that this year is because the qualifiers from, from the end of 2019 that qualified for Kona in 2020 couldn't go because of COVID it was canceled. And then they had the option in 
or then then again, Kona was also canceled in 2021 because of COVID. And then moving into 2022, the qualifiers from 2019, 2020, and 2021 had the option to do the 2021 World Championships in St. George in 2022. Or they could continue on and do the October 2022 Kona. So it's a little bit confusing about how it all went down. So this year, just due to the amount of athletes who qualified in three years, the best decision, I think, was a a good decision was to make Kona a two-day event. And they do have support of the island and volunteers and, and everyone who is involved in putting on an Ironman World Championship. And then they already decided that in 2023, they're going to move forward with having a two-day event. And so to add more athletes to the sport, they're giving away, I don't know if giving away is the right word, but there's more slots available at certain races that you compete in in 2023. And a hundred of those slots are from Women, the Women for Tri Foundation, trying to support more women, get more women, I guess, to race on the big island. And so there was this article that recently came out that Mont Treblanc next year is going to have the most slots for women. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're going to have, I think, like 100 slots. And this past year, there were only close to about 300 women who finished. So that would mean you know, up to a third to a half of the finish, the women who finished Mont Treblanc this past year would have gotten a slot to Kona. So everyone, you know, when everyone, you know, those people who are trying to qualify, one of the smart things to do is to look at certain races, qualifying races, and to see who's giving away the more slots to see what kind of times you have to go to, you know, obviously what time of year, the races, if you can afford to go, there's a lot of logistics involved in choosing to do an Ironman. So that brought up the topic and Katie from our T2 endurance group wanted me to comment about it. So the article is the Ironman recently announced this dramatic expansion of the women's field for 2023 in Kona. So they have an additional day of racing dedicated to the women's field. There will be an additional 1200 qualifying spots for the race on a big Island through the women for try initiative, which was started or founded in 2015. With that number, they say, if, uh, how's it go? Based on this year's numbers, as many as 42% of the women's field at Ironman Montreblanc could qualify for Kona, 42%, whereas just 4.5% of the men could, which is fine. That's just how it works out. Here are other numbers here uh, or details. It says, this year there will be 287 women's finishers in Montreblanc there would be 120 expected slots at the event in 2023. Eight age group mandatory, 12 allocated for the 100 women for try. So the 120 divided by 287 is 42% of the women. In terms of percentages uh, after the race, the next best chance to earn a qualifying spot for Kona, if you're a woman, will be Lake Placid. Uh, just over 19% of the women there. Arizona, 19% of the women there. Chattanooga, almost 19%. Ironman Coeur d'Alene, almost 18.5% based on this analysis. So if you want to and want to start training now and sign up for those, those are your best chances. I love it. I love getting more and more people involved. And I wasn't aware of the 
Women for Try initiative. They were given a grant uh, a few years back, uh, $250,000 in grant funding to get this thing going to help increase female participation at all levels of triathlon. It's exciting. Yeah, and and I think it, I think it's a great initiative, and I'm all for. And I've said this my whole life: everyone should get a chance to compete on the Big Island because it's just an amazing experience. And so I'm all for, you know, athletes given the chance to compete on the Big Island. And I also think if they want to grow the sport and have athletes be able to compete on the Big Island, they they might consider just opening up the Hawaiian Ironman as a regular Ironman and just open up registration like they do all other Ironmans. Well, just to make it a regular Ironman versus thoughts. a world championship? Just, yes. Wouldn't and that take away from the, say, the health specialties? The reason specialties? I say wow. that... The reason I say that is they're they're giving they're not again I'm using the word giving away yeah. loosely they're not giving away slots but they are including more slots for women to qualify and you know just like the 73 the 73 point world championships last year in St. George people were turning them down and, and you know you could get you know 50th place in your age group and get a qualifying slot to the 70.3 world championships which to me doesn't make it a world championship with the, the elite of the elite, you know, the top two or three or four people in your age group. If you're going to a race and they're giving away 100 women for try slots and you're the top 100 female in your age group and you get a slot, I think it's awesome you get to compete. But at the same time, it, I think it, it, it lowers the level of a world championship. Kind of waters it down in a way. Yeah. But again, this is, this was my initial, this was my initial thoughts on the article. And, um, just based on my experience of racing, it becomes, to me, it becomes, you know, I really want to qualify, but it is a, it's super expensive. You know, if you want to get the, your best chance to go to Mont Treblanc, that's an expensive travel and venue to compete at. And then you get your slot and then it's really expensive to travel and compete at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, mm-hmm. so um, so there's just a lot of a lot of thoughts that go through my mind, and I will always still say, if you have the opportunity, don't pass it up. Go for sure. There's never been a better time to be a, a woman in the Ironman triathlon world if you want to compete and participate in Kona. Never better time than yeah. right now, especially having a day finally dedicated to all women. And then with more slots available and all these races available. So if you want to get it off your bucket list, don't want to do the Ironman Legacy program, if that's what it's called, uh, this is a way to earn it legitimately because more opportunities available. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's, yeah, there we go. They used to have a lottery. Do you remember the lottery? I remember that, and they had to, um, it was deemed illegal. They had to stop that because people had to pay to be in the lottery and you weren't guaranteed a slot. And then if you did get the slot, you had to pay for the, the slot. Right. So they were double dipping in a way and it just wasn't right. Yep. This was a big wow. deal. And, uh, I feel fortunate in, to be involved in the final North American Ironman race in which 
Mike Riley will be announcing in Arizona here in just under 12 weeks. But this is this came across the social media yesterday, I believe, that Mike Riley is announcing his retirement, meaning he will be hanging up or unplugging the mic at the end of 2022 after 33 years of calling races. Um, I mean, I'm sure we all have a Mike Riley uh story or the time we met him or you can still hear him saying you know you are an iron man uh what was your reaction when you heard this or or saw this and maybe even saw iron man voice is his uh instagram profile where he made this emotional announcement yeah i mean here you know he was wearing sunglasses so right away i'm like oh he's gonna get emotional under those sunglasses um you know closure you know this it's definitely a closure type of thing i think his reasonings to spend more time with his family and his grandkids and not missing those opportunities um of seeing them grow up because he's traveling to all events around the world making other people's dreams come true and i think it's a very valid reason and i'm really happy for him i think that's exciting um, he gets to move on to the next chapter of his life, spending time with family. And, you know, it's definitely going to be different, you know, for a couple years, not having him around and part of the Ironman events and hearing him, yeah. you know, hearing him say your name across the finish line. But again, I think, I think for those who haven't been in the sport as long as some of us have, they're not going to know the difference because they're so new and maybe they're competing in their first Ironman that they don't know any different. And so... I think, you know, whoever you ask, you know, I think us, us, me and you and, and a lot of our friends who have been in the sport a long time are going to be a little bit more emotional about him leaving than someone who's like, I've never done an Ironman, so I don't even know what you're talking about. I just want to cross the finish line. I've got uh, a number of interviews and videos with Mike over the years on the Endurance Hour YouTube channel. And one that sticks out to me here, I bet two, 10 years ago. He was reflecting on mm-hmm. his 100th Ironman, announcing that. And it was eight years ago. That's when I did my uh, Ironman Arizona for the first time, 2013. He was announcing, and his son Andy was doing his first Ironman at Arizona. So I interviewed both yeah, of them uh, pre-race eight years ago. I only got a few hundred uh, views. I'm surprised. Uh, very specific, though. And then, because I was racing, I believe my wife had the camera. I believe she did, because she got me crossing the line. Uh, but we have Mike calling in his son, Andy, across the finish line. <coughs> I'm kind of thinking about it right now. I get oh, wow. a little goose, goosebumps and, and choked up because I can still hear him saying so many words and, you know, paraphrasing though. Uh, and, and now down, down coming the line is, uh, Andy Riley. Uh, here's, here comes my boy. You know, you are an Ironman. It's just really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of actually a little emotional this morning for a couple of reasons, but just having, you know, being able to call your son across the line for the first time and seeing them embrace, it was just really cool. That's got 5,000 views from year, eight years ago uh, in 2013. And now 2022 will be his final um, North American Ironman race that he'll call. And fortunately for me, I'll be there for it. Uh, one more little mm-hmm. bonus um, you know, hearing him say those words coming down. I remember when I came down the finish line, I high fived him. I high-fived him, high-fived him. Oh, nice. And it was strange uh, because it's dark. Even though I had a, a good day on, in terms of time, in Arizona, it got dark. So, you know, the, they had the lights on. So I had the lights blasted at my face, but I saw Mike off to the right a little bit. And I know the lights are on because they're, you know, showcase people coming across and they take your photo. Uh, but I saw him and I 
be sure to put my hand up and I gave him a high five and came across the line. I was, I was stoked. A negative split of the, the run on that day. I was just having a great day. And uh, he was there. So that's my, you know, in addition to being a professional friend, you know, over the years, it was yeah. cool to have him call, you know, call me across as he has a couple of different times and, and then give him a high five on that race. And that was my last, that wasn't my last, that wasn't my last, but my Arizona eight years ago. Do you have a, a Mike Riley story that comes to mind? Um, 20, 20, 2008, when I was the first female amateur to cross the line. And he knew it and he announced it that way oh, did he? that I was the first female amateur. So that was pretty cool yeah. because when you go to the world championships, it's more about being first, like top in your age group. They don't really highlight necessarily the overall amateur because there's pros there. So they focus on the overall pros yeah. and then they just focus on, you know, age group top um, five for amateurs. But he actually announced me as the first amateur female, which is pretty special. And then um, one year I was in Boulder and I think we did a podcast or we recorded it. He did story time with Mike Riley at in Boulder. It was for the Boulder Ironman. And so I went to that and I recorded it and it was just the coolest thing to hear his history and how he got started as the voice of Ironman. And the yeah. first time he was not the voice of Ironman yet, but he said, you are an Ironman. And that's the reason he got the job that he had. And that was cool to just hear his history of it all. And then the last time I was in Kona was in 2017. One of my friends got a women for tri slot to race in Kona. And she, part of that was to have lunch with Mike Riley. And she invited me and two other girlfriends to have lunch with Mike Riley. Hmm. So that was another cool experience. That's neat. Well, that's uh, kind of our podcast today. 270, uh, 371. Uh, Wendy's on her final five weeks before Kona. I got just under 12. So please stay with us as we share our journey along the way. And uh, some of our weekend adventures, which is Wendy's always doing a little something. Are those going to really kind of be pushed off to the side as you really get focused here in the last uh, four to five weeks? Yeah. The next four, four, you know, three to four weeks, we'll just be training. Um, I have no events planned. Like, you know, I've, I've been doing some local 5k, 10k's half marathons and I have none of those planned. It's just going to be from here on out, just making sure I dial in my pace and my nutrition and get those a few more long rides in mm -hmm. a few long runs. And I'm looking forward to my taper. And for those of you who listen to the podcast to its completion, uh, we are, we've added a, a second email to our newsletter subscribers and that's going to be on Monday or just gonna, on Mondays. Is that what we're doing it on? Mondays, yeah. So we have a number of partners that we've uh, worked with over the years that give us discount codes exclusive to uh, Coach Wendy and to myself, and we're going to share those in a, a standalone email. So if you see those on Monday, that's what they are. It's not spam. It's just like, hey, we, we can want to pass along some savings that uh, we've been granted by partners or sponsors that you can benefit just by being a newsletter subscriber, and you'll still get on Thursdays and Fridays. Uh, most likely Fridays, a recap of what's been going on that week, a little preview of the podcast and some other great articles and, and links to videos and, and information for you. And that's what Wendy put together uh, now twice a week. So be aware of that if you see it on Mondays, our money-saving Mondays. And Yes, and if you're someone who, who has a partner deal that you want us to share in our newsletter, um, discount code somewhere that's not in combat with what we're offering, that'd be great. 
Yeah. You know, people, let me know. people have these, uh, these deals or these, uh, you, just save time on having to search the internet. Like, oh, I want to save 20, 20% on what? Well, let's see what, you know, each week we're going to, we'll give you the latest that we have. If we get something new that week, we'll put yeah. it in that newsletter on Mondays. Just be a quick email with just links to discount codes and savings. Yes. And the next Monday is actually going to be Labor Day Monday. And mm-hmm. those tend to have a lot more than other Mondays. Usually if the Monday falls on a holiday, there's just more deals out there that we know about. Cool. All right. For that, uh, thanks so much for listening this week. Have a great week of uh, training, racing, or recovery. We'll see you back here next time. Adios. Adios. Mm-hmm.